All right, we'll wait for folks to continue to trickle in, but we'll get started just in the interest of time. Um, so welcome to Bias and AI. Um, I realize that the, uh, the placard outside says something a little bit different in the slide up here, but we're really gonna be talking about the subtleties of bias in AI and how it influences what we do. Uh, we'll look at it from the sociological and you know, in an introspective manner as it relates to um, AI and what we do in, within that space. So first and foremost, even though we're not gonna be discussing anything that has to do with roadmaps or any of those associated technologies, I'm gonna give you five seconds to look this one over. Don't use this as investment advice or any of that kind of stuff, so uh, just be aware of that. So just to introduce myself, my name is Dave Graham. I am the Director of Emerging Technologies Messaging here at Dell Technologies. Um, I have a pretty eclectic background. I was a social worker in the state of Massachusetts for about two and a half, three years, um, amongst other things. So I'm not what you would consider your archetypical technologist or, or marketing guy, as, as it were. And yes, that's my Twitter profile picture. So I apologize in advance. So what is bias? The first thing I thought I would do, and it's actually kind of beneficial. We have a smaller group here. So I'm going to do a little exercise. Um, a lot of what we do in life and day-to-day, -day, you know, in meeting our customers and meeting our partners and interacting with teams is that we make assumptions. You know, we have biases. And the way this shows up is in the following exercise. So I want you to stand up and introduce yourself to one other person, either in your row or otherwise. And I want you to remember in the back of your mind that first impression that you have. That you make a judgment call in that moment. And I want you to save this judgment call for when we have the Q&A time at the very end. Because we're going to ask you about it. Anybody want to call out who she is? All right. 
So what's, why am I putting Elizabeth Warren up on, on the screen? This is not an endorsement, I promise. Elizabeth Warren made a comment or made a statement, has done several things over her history as a senator, as a leader in this astute uh, United States of America, that have caused people concern. Well, that's one of them. She made a claim that she was Native American. Now, does she look Native American? Now, you can answer this freely. This is a safe space. No. Okay. No, she doesn't. Does that mean that she isn't? No. All right. So this was the argument, right? We got down to the she went and took a DNA test and she proved that there is somewhere along the line, whether it be her great-great-grandmother or whatever, that is Native American. But we look at her and we make a judgment call. We say, you are white. You cannot possibly be Native American. So that's using what we perceive and that's using our understanding of what Native American is in order to make a judgment call against her and her who she is. So when you're looking at your data sets, if you don't include all the data, if you don't have a complete understanding of everything, and you're just sampling the part that you want, you're exhibiting bias. Representation bias. This occurs when the only certain parts of the input space are underrepresented. Now, <laughs> this is me. <laughs> this is my DNA profile. Um, I have no problem sharing this with you. I'm, I'm a pretty interesting guy, evidently. I, um, I'm also adopted, so this was another one of these little interesting bits and pieces for me. So discovering my heritage was a huge, huge bit and piece of this. However, again, I'm white, all right? When you go to 23andMe or you go to my ancestor, you go to family DNA or whatever, they are basing all of their studies on what we call parent genome, right? It's a collection of all the sample tests and you know, processes that they've been able to collect over the years. That is inherently biased towards, or is represented by, mostly Western European or Anglo-Saxon uh, individuals, right? So I'm gonna get better results, and actually this has changed four or five times since I took this test even as they've included additional sampling. But if my, my colleague Brian were to go in here and do a DNA test, it would show some basic information about Brian. It would not, however, represent him to the level or detail or extent that is here. This is what we call representation bias. There is, and 23andMe does openly admit and does openly disclaim this process, so they're doing it in a way that is, you know, I think, fair overall. And they are taking efforts to kind of remediate that process as well. And this would be a good example of representation bias. Evaluation bias. This occurs when the evaluation and or benchmark data for an algorithm doesn't represent the target population. Again, using current and contemporary news, everybody recognize, well, you shouldn't recognize this per se, but um, Amazon, they provide the national survey, they provide a surveillance program to you know, state local governments. It's called recognition uh, with a K, because that makes you edgy. Um, one of the things that they did was they went out and their sample database was comprised of mugshots. How accurate do you think mugshots are to predict a population? Probably not the best indicator of who would be, you know, who would be a criminal, who wouldn't be, right? So what you have here is they went out and, uh, ACLU actually, went out and took this database, ran the exact same test against sitting members of Congress. And what they found is uh, Rep. Sanford Bishop from Georgia was identified as a criminal. Despite what you may think about politics, I don't think that Sanford is the criminal. But he was represented in a way that was unfair, right? They took something that identified these salient features and said, oh, he must be this type of thing. And this is why you see lawsuits in society based around, well, using this database in order to identify people that, 
you know, encoder could not be criminals. All right, aggregation and measurement bias, last two. So aggregation bias occurs when a one-size-fits-all model is used for groups with different conditional distributions. This is an infant mortality chart. I hate to be really dark here, but this serves the point. When we look at this, causes of pregnancy-related deaths in the United States from 2011-2014. It's a very, you know, it's an interesting eye chart, right? It talks a lot about it. You can see kind of a gradual decline. One thing it doesn't include here is it doesn't actually represent everybody, so there's a more representation bias problem. But one thing it doesn't call it is, for example, when I went and talked to a couple doctors about this, the higher incidence of um, prenatal care, preeclampsia, high blood pressure, and delivery problems that African American women or black women have when they're delivering babies. So infant mortality actually could be skewed based on a certain type of population, even though we're trying to roll this all up. And again, fair disclaimer to the, the agency that provided this, which was the CDC, you know, they are trying to do one size fits all here, but um, that's something you have to be careful of. You have to make sure you understand the inclusion underneath it. And measurement bias, which is the last one, is caused when any sort of measurement collected about or from a subject is not completely accurate. Mr. Henry, how tall are you? I don't know. <laughs> is that your actual height? No. How come? So you're saying I have to make an, I have to make an assumption based on how, right. how tall you are. So again, I put a rule up here, and I poke at Ed because he and I talked about this one yesterday. But unless I can absolutely positively be sure as to Ed's height, I can only make a gross assumption, right? So that's actually, I, mean, I can only measure what I see, right? And if I can't go down to that level of detail, I have to somehow couch that in ways that makes my data still valid, right? So that's something to be aware of. So why does it, all this stuff matter? I'd like to introduce Brian Reeves. Brian, you want to give a little intro? Sure, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to sit out with Brian, I'm an old man that's biased. I'm a young man. Um, <laughs> I, have, you know, I have the great uh, honor of being Dale's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. been here for about uh, 18 months. It's been a great ride, um, given Michael's focus on uh, diversity and inclusion as a, uh, as a business imperative. Um, what's interesting, maybe to some of you guys, is uh, I've only been in this type of role for the last three years. My degrees are in math and computer science. Uh, but given how I grew up, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles in an uh, area and neighborhood where uh, personal and life outcomes, quite honestly, were overly, um, overly positive. But through the love of my family and a focus uh, on education and the opportunities I received, I was able to get my degrees and. Um, you know, sort of have a 35 plus year career in tech, but all the way along the line, it was very important for me to remember that there are a lot of people like me, uh, you know, socioeconomically different, um, you know, like me, who should get opportunities. So about three years ago, I had the great uh, honor of the CEO of SAP, uh, Bill McDermott asked me and, and said, hey, you really look at this as a business imperative, you should do this not as a side hustle, but as the main hustle. I agreed, and that's what put me on Dell's radar. Uh, the fun fact there, though if you look at my teeth uh, now, you would not know this, uh, is my family, my mom, my sister, and I, we were in a uh, toothpaste commercial. Now, interesting enough, it was run, uh, Crest at the time uh, was trying to uh, sort of market to uh, a more broader and inclusive demographic, those being black people, so they started putting uh, black people in commercials, and we were in a Crest commercial that ran in the South. 
So we don't know how we what it did, but we got nice portraits of our family. That was our thing for that time. I, I think that's kind of blackmail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 <laughs> yeah. All right. So what I want to do here is we're going to ask a couple, I'm going to ask Brian a, a few questions and um, about some of his journey through through AI, through bias, and through through these processes. And at the end, again, remember that question that exercise I had to do. We're going to we're going to ask you guys to reflect back some stuff, and we'll we'll have a conversation. So, Brian, first question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So, how have you been, or how have you seen bias affect AI? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of positives to it, and I think we all experience it uh, every day. I don't know how many of you guys, though it is frustrating for me, because Siri does not always understand what I'm asking her. But with Siri and Alexa uh, and voice recognition, there's definitely AI there that's very, very positive. Uh, the same, I'm a big uh, Netflix and Hulu fan. Again, I'm not sponsoring or endorsing any of those companies, uh, but I watch a, a lot of TV when, when I, and I get a chance. And, and the, the recommendations engine is, is very, very good and has evolved over time. That's positive. And for any of you who have ever, and this has recently happened to me, received an alert uh, that uh, there was a purchase on your credit card uh, that was probably, you know, that was spurious in nature. Well, that's AI working because that work just happened in a place that I was never and ever have never been in. Um, so those are all very positive. But but what I will say, um, there's some very alarming, uh, you know, sort of uses of AI. Um, if you went out right now and and Google the word grandma or even mother, the images that will come back are a bunch of grandmas and mothers that don't look like my grandma or mother. They're mostly older white women if it's a grandma. Uh, if you say mother, they're younger white women. Uh, you'd have to actually scroll several pages in uh, before you were able to see uh, a person that I would even closely identify as a person. And again, now if I put black grandmother or black mother, then those would come up. But you know, just, the, you know, just the description, we all have grandmothers and, and we all have mothers. Uh, the other one that, that I thought was pretty interesting as well is if you Google thug, and again, I don't know what came to your mind immediately right now, by definition, a thug is just a criminal. It doesn't have anything to do with race, creed, or color. But if you Google the word thug, you're going to get the many pages of black young men, many of them rappers, uh, and I think I saw Vanilla Ice on page like three. So, yeah, so he, he, is, he, he has made it there. So, so obviously, and we'll, we'll explore this a little more deeply, um, you know, and in, in, in social you know, media, this is what people believe. A lot of people, when they do these searches, they really will believe this is the true definition, and that's what when we talk about what bias is and how it instantiates in your brain. So there's some really good you know stuff, but there's some stuff of concern. The last two I'll share from a business perspective is um, there are some uh, you know counties that are now using AI in their criminal uh, uh, justice system, where they actually use AI to determine what sentence or the length of a sentence that an individual should get is supposed to be on the data based on what the crime is and, and, and all of those. Uh, Dartmouth did a recent study that really showed that that, that that system is extremely biased because for the same exact crime, the same background, the same way the crime went down, the same way people were infect, uh, affected, uh, people of color got significantly longer sentences than those who didn't. Uh, very similarly, and I know all of us uh, sadly probably have uh, borrowed money uh, from banks, uh, the AI and them, they evaluate um, interest rates based on your know, credit worthiness. And again, you can take you know one person from one background, same exact background, make X number of dollars a year, have this job for this month, my credit score is exactly the same, 
And what you'll find is that the, uh, the, the percentage uh, interest rate that you get for, again, uh, you know, underrepresented groups is significantly higher than other groups. So obviously there's bias in those systems and these are supposedly machines. Supposedly. Supposedly. Alright, second question here. How can engineers, data scientists, and developers help safeguard against bias? There, there's a few different ways, um, and, and there's a lot of research going in, and I would say that there's at least two, and, and, and maybe it'll, it'll bleed into a third. Number one, uh, at, the, at the, the people who are writing the algorithmic bias, you know, by the way, there's a tech uh, guru session uh, tomorrow. I have the great honor of introducing one of the preeminent experts uh, on algorithmic bias. Her name is Dr. Joy Bulamwini, and she'll talk a lot about the research. She's a uh, Rhodes Scholar, a Fulbright Fellow, and has done deep, deep uh, analysis on, on this topic. But uh, number one, you know, you must, in, in companies that, that are you know, writing algorithms, they should have diversity uh, and inclusion with regards to who's writing the algorithms. And not just from the standpoint of gender or race or ethnicity, but different backgrounds as well, not just only having you know, developers in there. You should bring in people from other disciplines because their mind and the way they think about uh, algorithms and solving problems is much different. And uh, Stanford has done a lot of work in this area and they've proved, they've started to show studies that prove that uh, you know, the algorithms are, are definitely better and the solutions are definitely better when you have that broader um, uh, sort of diverse group uh, at it. Second, and you spoke about it earlier, is really in the data sets. Uh, garbage in is garbage out. You know, that's, that's the beginning of computing that is always going to be true. Um, and you have to have representative data sets. So, number one, if it's not representative to the point you made, you're going to only get certain outputs. I'll give you an example. Volvo, uh, you know, or have moved in, like many companies, uh, automotive companies, into autonomous cars and, you know, self-driving cars. And so, you know, they had the programmers figuring out, you know, and then you have to identify objects because you don't want the car running over people, let alone animals. And they, in their data set, they had, you know, they were saying, okay, you know, here are all large land-based animals. Uh, and obviously, if the car sees these animals, it should stop, you know, sort of in some safe manner and hopefully not swerve. Well, they took the car, when they brought the car to Australia, um, the, the cars were not performing very well, and it was swerving and having accidents. Well, what they figured out is when a car, when the car saw a kangaroo, what does a kangaroo do, do to move forward? It does not run on the ground. It actually moves forward by hopping. And so the people who programmed the Thomas car, I guess in their data set, they had never thought of a land-based animal being a kangaroo. And hence, you have that lack of, of uh, you have that bias that that's it. Um, so, the third piece is to start to, to de-bias the data. Going back to that example that I gave about financial services institutions, when we fill out the application, they'll ask things like, you know, how much money, your job history, but in there they will also ask you a question about your ethnicity and your background. And what happens is those two things get coupled together. I make $80,000 a year and I'm an African-American male. I make $80,000 a year and I'm a white male. Guess what happens when you put those two together? What's more important when you're, you know, if your credit rating is right and you make $80,000, that should be the result. The fact that you come from others, uh, another different background should not bias towards a decision or not. And that happens all the time. So you need to be able to look at the data and, and de-bias it. And, and last but not least is use, even if you have and you believe you have de-biased your, your, the, the data set, 
you probably want to run it through multiple applications to see, different applications, different purposes to see if you get the same results. Because it could be the data or potentially could be the application itself that's biased. That's very true. All right, how does a personal worldview influence bias? And why is this important to consider when taking on a project? Well, you spoke a lot about the science behind it, and it knows it as well. I mean, but you know, just looking at what bias is and, and how it gets formed, the personal worldview uh, is very important. So at any given time, uh, we're presented with about 11 million pieces of information. It's pretty incredible that what's happening. But our, our brain uh, you know, is able to handle that, but the average human being, and I'm not that for sure, can only handle 40 pieces of data at any given time. 40 versus the 11 million uh, coming at you. So keep us from going crazy, because obviously our, that, that would be overload, our brain optimizes itself. And the way it optimizes itself is, is very good. It's based on past experience and things that we've experienced. So very innocuous things like, do I go left or right? I mean, that's pattern. You know, I've always gone left to get to where I want to go or right. So those things are great. So the brain does a very good thing. The problem with human, when it evaluates human beings, it's mostly based on social stereotypes. Uh, and those social stereotypes, by definition, uh, are biased unless you have lived a life where you, you've been around a lot of inclusive uh, people and input. Um, and so those, those, those uh, are the things that sort of form how you see the world. So you just need to be, now there's nothing wrong with that because that's how we work and we wouldn't be able to operate as human beings without these capabilities. But understanding that the immediate reaction like the, in the, the exercise you did is probably what came to your mind is based on all the knowledge that you've built up over time that is a pattern in your mind. Yeah, we like to mess around with those neural pathways a little bit. Oh, absolutely, because it goes, I mean, the, the brain's very to find out what the result of that was. So, um, all right, last question for you. When it comes to bias in AI, it's not all bad, like we yeah. talked about at the beginning. So how do you think AI can help mitigate bias? Yeah, we're doing some stuff. I mean, and, and uh, you know, I'd encourage everybody to go down to the engines of human progress. So Adele, I mean, you know, again, I'm very passionate about this topic, and I believe that, you know, AI and machine learning, you know, deep learning, could be used uh, to help mitigate or identify and mitigate bias within uh, what I call the talent continuum. So one of the biggest challenges in our industry is most companies don't believe there's going to be enough talent for us to, to, to move forward and prosecute our business, ours and our customers' business, uh, in order to innovate. Um, you know, I, I call BS a little bit on that because the definition of qualified talent uh, is, again, very, very, very biased. There's definitely enough people in this world uh, with the skill and will, and if given the right opportunity and knowledge, can you know sort of be in our industry. And, and there's de definitely more than enough talent. So what we're doing at Dell Technologies is, uh, in partnership with Mercer, who's a leading global HR consultancy, very deep knowledge in DNI, very deep knowledge in the content, and certainly with our technical acumen, we've come in, we're come together to build a platform based on AI, machine learning, other technologies that'll help identify and mitigate bias around the talent continuum. You know, where do we go, like companies, what decisions are we making as to where we go to identify talent? A lot of decisions we make that, that we go to, like, what's, by the way, in your companies, I, you know, I was talking to Michael about this uh, as well, it's like, what's a top school? What's a, you know, when we say you're going to a top university, you know what that is in most companies, probably in yours as well? It's, just, it's the alma maters of the people in power. Because, you know, what is it? Michael Dell doesn't have a degree. Bill Gates doesn't have a degree. So obviously, you know, sort of the concept is very interesting. So where we go to identify talent, how we engage 
to, to, um, uh, to, to hire that talent, that interviewing process where someone's sitting on one side of, of the aisle interviewing someone else and their bias kicks in and if you have two candidates and one, you just, you, you'll hear that, well that person, it was close, but I felt a little bit better about this one. Well that little bit better is probably that person has tapped into something that's very similar to that individual. So obviously having diverse, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, interviewers, having a diverse pool, um, the Rooney Rule for, for some of you, you guys are part of that. The next part of that continuum is around how to onboard. All things aren't equal. Even if we had diverse talent in our companies, the onboarding experience is optimized for some normal person, you know, some normal case, whatever that means. And certain people have special needs to development and upward mobility. So that entire talent continuum uh, is rife uh, with bias. And what we're doing is we're going to bring technology to help companies understand also offer up best practices and give companies what we call an inclusion net promoter score, um, which will tell a company, where are you uh, on the continuum? Let's say the scores are zero to 100 and you're at 32, but we'll model and say the best in your industry is at 35. And we'll tell and tie directly with math to what the, those three points, what does it mean from a business um, outcome perspective? If, you know, what does it mean to the top line uh, innovation if you were to be more inclusive? What does it mean to the bottom line for employee engagement and retention that endures benefit uh, to the bottom line? So we'll actually you know, build the map to show companies the value of inclusion to their business because there's no company that wouldn't want to do better and continue to do better. Uh, they might not all agree that the, it's the right thing to do, but they all will agree that it's the right thing to do to drive the business forward. So extending that bubble out a little yeah. bit, and that's something that sure. we're doing. So let's go outside in. Sure. Like how, do, how do the companies that we work with, how can they take our, you know, the same thing that we're attempting to do or, or will be doing, and how can they work backwards towards us? How, you know, if, even if they don't have the NPS or the, yeah. the promoter scores, what are some of the things that they can implement practically? Yeah, practically implement is, number one, it's all about data. I mean, it's understanding where your current representation is. Um, a lot of companies are just, uh, you know, quite honestly, from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, they're at the, let's take some training, right? And we have some foundational training with our many advocating real change, foundational learning where we teach people about unconscious bias and privilege and intersectionality and microaggression and the impact of the business. But just looking at the data and, and being able to set goals, I mean, and, and reasonable goals, and they don't have to be goals always around representation. It could be, uh, you know, improving, um, you know, sort of the, uh, the net promoter score of an individual, you know, of a certain class of individuals. It could be setting things like, how do we uh, behave in meetings? The one thing that each of us could do uh, every day, what do we do at the end of, the, uh, of a typical business meeting? Well, we take action items. I mean, that's a global thing. Anywhere I've been in the world, that's what happens. What if at the end of a meeting, we actually evaluated how inclusive was that meeting? Did everyone who wanted to get an opportunity to speak, get a chance to speak? Or if we came to a conclusion too quickly, for the love of goodness, can someone just take an opposite point of view? Because our customers certainly will. If we agree too quick, that something's wrong. I mean, they're having that inclusive mindset. So I think it first starts for companies with data, understanding and looking at their best practices around, or the practices around the talent continuum, and to start to sort of compare those practices to the best practices of companies who they aspire to be from an inclusion standpoint based on whatever metric that, that they want to measure. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So now the fun part. Yes. Q&A time. Yeah.
All right, so we had that exercise at the beginning. We asked you to go and shake someone else's hand. You know, if I shook Brian's hand. Hey, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Something that goes through my mind when I shake Brian's hand, he's got a firm grip. So I'm making a judgment call already. This is, this is Brian. He's a man, right? Yeah. That's pretty yeah. obvious, right? Yeah. <laughs> but in that moment, I'm making that judgment call. I'm, I'm identifying the type of person I'm gonna interact with, right? You're gonna, you have a firm handshake, so you're gonna be that kind of guy. You're gonna be resolute. You're probably gonna have an opinion on things, yeah. probably. Um, and so we're gonna interact in a certain way. I'm gonna make, make my assumptions now. I'm gonna act in accordance to what I believe you're gonna do. Right. So when we flip it to you guys, I'm not even gonna call people out, but what are some of the impressions that came out? Anybody can say anything. And understand, again, this is a safe space. This is nothing that we say here. It's gonna be held against you, used against you in the court of law or otherwise. We wanna hear what your opinions are. So, start on this side of the room, in this section, anybody. The person you shook hands with, the person you introduced to you, what was the first thing that came to mind when you did that? Someone's grinning back there. I'm gonna like, call on you. <laughs> All right, so second row from the back, second seat in. Oh, the accent. Accent. Okay. So, accent. So you're making. You have it. That's fine. I can lapse into a very terrible accent myself. And Suzanne Lestrange, who's over there, can already attest to the fact that I've done that to her. So, in that moment, when you when you identify that, so you're making a judgment call, or you're hearing something, you're perceiving something, and right, and that's going to lead you to an inevitable conclusion, right or wrong, right? It just it just adds to the the overall tenor of what you're doing, right? So, accent. That's a good one. Center section, since I don't really have a left section over here. Uh, someone Richard? Yeah, so uh, response time. Okay. Uh, you know, I was kind of expecting a certain gait, like a, a shake hands, I was expecting this, not taking into account uh, language barriers and things like that. So, uh, okay. So, yours was a physiological interaction, right? You're looking at, you're kind of looking at the physics of the, of the situation. Anybody else in this section? Bryn. So interestingly enough, when they showed the guru session yesterday, so if anybody attended the guru session yesterday afternoon, um, I'm Rana, I believe. Rana, right? yep, yeah. yep. So she, uh, from Affectiva, she has an application that goes and judges your, you know, actually Annalise over there and, and Megan. So they both ended up talking to speakers yesterday. But one of the applications that Affectiva did was to judge your, you know, make a judgment call based on your facial expression and what you're actually feeling, what, you know, the kind of emotions behind that. So I played around with that a little bit, and you're right, I can lie to a machine. So they thought I was joyful, and I was completely patently not at that moment. <laughs> so, all right, so that's interesting. So we have a physics thing, we have a perception thing, you know, the non-auditory thing, we have an auditory thing. Like all these things, so you can already tell that we're coming to the table. So like question number three, worldview. It affects everything that we do. And so when you take on these projects, whether it be mathematically based or it be sociologically based, I mean, we are a company that's based around technology, but we have social impact. And so a lot of everything that we do has to judge the beginning to the end, right? We have to look at that continuum. So as you do these things and as you go forward, understand that. There's a means to the, to the exercise, right? I mean, once you guys continue to think about it, so next time you go into a meeting, next time you talk with your peers, next time you interact with anybody, Start to check yourself. Figure out what you're yeah. responding to and how you're responding. Yeah. And like Brian said, maybe at the end of a meeting, circle back around with yourself and check in. And say, hey, you know, I made an assumption about this person, yeah. and I don't know if it was necessarily right. Correct. So 
Any questions from you, Brian? Yeah, any clarification? No, 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 that, that's great. Going back to the smile one, and I can tell you how social status plays in to incorrect assumptions. Some of the most prolificness is going on oh, and go dark with everybody. Some of the most prolific serial killers, infant mortality rate. Some of the most prolific serial killers in this world. Everybody, yeah, when you think of a serial killer or, or someone who does that type of thing, you think of a certain type of person. But some of the most prolific ones, the reason why they were able to continue to do the things that they do, they were doctors, they had sort of status in some way, and we somehow think in our mind, well, the doctor would never, you know, sort of do that, or the lawyer would never do that. So those type of things, so you just can't go by what you believe to, to, to be and what you've learned, because most of us do learn that doctors are good people and they're going to help us and, and such, and people will take advantage of that as well. So. Absolutely. I coined the term Netflix and kill, I think. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's a, you'll see my, my, my suggestions there. So any questions from the audience? We'd love if we can go any. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, you have to, I mean, when you see something like that, then you have to start to look to see if you have a comprehensive enough data set and what, you know, number one, who, who programmed that in? So in that logic of, um, you know, certain interest rates being given to certain groups of people, there has to be some study or some data that must show, especially if you tie someone's ethnicity or cultural background to outcomes that shows that people of a certain type of race or culture don't pay loans back. And you have to question everything. So where did that come from? Something probably tells me that at some point someone made some you know, sort of racial or racist dispersion and just thought, well, you know, I've only been around these type of people and uh, they're more trustworthy than that. Because if the data literally, if you, if you lined it up and if someone from this credit score or this background has paid their bills, you should suspend disbelief and believe that that's what that behavior is more important than the race or culture that they're tied to. So once you find it, then you've got to dig deeper. That's what most companies don't do. And that's what you'll find with uh, Dr. Abu Lamwini tomorrow, is she'll talk about how she called Google out, how she called Microsoft out, and their first reactions were, oh no, we're fine. And it was only when they, because what she'll share with you is, when she was doing, she was getting her PhD in facial recognition, and when, you know, when, when she had subjects that the machines were, were, were identifying, that weren't black, you know, it was very, very accurate. When her face came up, it showed up as either an older man, a monkey, and all kinds of things. And she challenged them, and their first reaction was no. But as people started to focus on it, then they started working with her, and most of them had, to sort of correct that, so. Sure, sure. Oh my goodness, yeah. I'm kind of curious as to whether, you know, picking out any corruption or traditional subjective bias, they're using any kind of scoring or algorithms or any AI in terms of the admissions process. Um, some schools are. I, 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 in my last company, we were Notre Dame, I mean, they're deep in the day. They're doing, you know, analytics on a number of the Some do. Clearly the ones that aren't. But, but so, even if they did, Again, going to some of the bias that you're, that you're speaking to, this idea of privilege, right? There's always been privilege in universities. I don't know, where'd you go to school? Yeah, USC. 
Ah, I'm a Bruin. Okay, we still love each other. We're still in Southern California there. But you know, as you walk around campus, and I grew up right around the corner from your campus there, you'll see, you know, you'll see buildings with names on them and, you know, the donors. If you are, uh, you know, a relative of any of those donors, I don't care what your GPA is, what your SAT score is, you're going to be able to get in those. That privilege has always been around, who you know and access. But what was criminal about this one is, even with that privilege, they went ahead and actually cheated. And that, you know, that, to me, that's just, and oh, by the way, those individuals, they got in, it's, it's not the kids, but they're taking spots away from other kids who, when we go back to our earlier point, these underrepresented groups of people would love to go to a UNC or UCLA, we were on the list as well. Um, those spots have been taken up by people with privilege who even tried to, you know, accelerate that privilege by even going further, you know, photoshopping pictures into being an athlete. I mean, that's just crazy. That's criminal. I mean, that goes beyond. But uh, yeah, a lot of schools are starting to look at, um, and even some of the majority schools are starting to look at their, um, their practices of bringing in talent because when they look at the representation, some of the quote unquote top schools, it's not there. And it's not like there aren't students that are smart enough to be in schools like that. So go back to your first thing, um, your first question about social or criminal justice system. So in sociology, when I was a social worker, a lot of what you're based around, well, a lot of what you do is based around aging research, right? So again, you already are predisposed towards a certain type of people group. They're going to function in a certain way. They have certain customs that are going to act, uh, uh, that they're accustomed to acting at. So in my space, I, I came out of Mass. I'm actually from Southern California, but I live in Mass, so I actually have the USC and the Boston federal courts. <laughs> I got both ends. Um, <clears throat> so one of those things is, you know, I worked a lot with Dominicans and Haitian families, right? So you go in the door, and I'm white. I'm very white. You know, I walk in the door with you know, these folks, and I have to suddenly orient myself to sight, smell, sound, and discipline procedures, right? And so conversations that I would have, you know, trying to tell somebody that their lifestyle is not the same as I expect them to be or you can't do that because, right? So uh, discipline was a huge, you know, a huge issue, right? The way that those parents would discipline their children would not be considered normative to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants here in, in the greater New England area, right? So having to help them change their mindsets and mind views and, and, and react, react to that, but also going in there as a very young person and trying to implement these changes and trying to understand and you know, be amenable to this stuff. So a lot of even the criminal justice stuff is based around a lot of, I would say, bad data, bad data. right? It is, to, to Brian's point earlier, about garbage in, garbage out. We feed these systems based on our perceptions of what reality is, yeah. right? Not what it should be. Um, we see this in, I hate to bring up Jesse Smollett, but we bring this up in that case as well. Jesse gets to, uh, man, actually it's, it's an interesting case because this one of the judges is sitting over there, uh, a woman committed fraud Right, and got a higher sentence for doing that than the 16 count indictment based on, you know, felonious, you know, felonious reporting. Why? Why is it? Why are things weighted in such a way as to provide an excess amount of punishment, even based on privilege, privilege and notwithstanding and whatever connections? Uh, we have this problem, obviously, with uh, the amount of uh, marijuana convictions, right? Absolutely. Minor possession. I think every single candidate for president, you know, in 2020 has mentioned. Our prisons are so chock full of first offenders that have been hit with, you know, California three strikes law or whatever, have been hit with these things that are predisposed, or they're built around a false premise. They're built around a false data set. They're built around something that we believe should be the correction for that. So you see it in all aspects of life. Again, I'm more on the sociological spectrum than the criminal justice side, but it all applies in there. The way the families receive benefits is also 
it's usually tied into. Remember, incentivization for hospitals to deliver, you know, black babies better or more safely. Why should that even have to happen if we have a standard of care that says you're human? We believe that this is the best that we should do. Um, so yeah, it applies in everything. And I think you know, in the doctors I talk to, they want that to happen. They want to be taken for the basis of care, not because there's an aberration in that system somewhere along the lines. So. Yeah, that was a great question. Any other questions? Gentlemen, in the back? Yeah. Um, thinking, uh, you guys have talked a lot about uh, different areas that I would characterize as blind spots that we have, right? Mm -hmm. um, bias in terms of confirmation bias, where if the, the MedApp score comes back, and, um, because based on race, uh, somebody who's black has a lower score than somebody who's white or what have you. Um, but if the person who's looking at that and examining it for bias sees something that they already expect, yeah. they're going to shrug and not have any, there's no, no real check there, right? Right. Um, the solution you've talked about has been get relationships and engage with people of diverse backgrounds yes. so that we can kind of back out of that. The reality is, in technology, it's very male-driven. There's, there is a huge bias just in terms of the people sitting in the chairs doing the work. Right. My question is, is there an opportunity for AI systems to ultimately act as that check? Where uh. there is, I don't even know how to say it, but a, a way for them to safeguard against the human bias through self-driven systems? Yeah, you're going, or yes. Yeah. I'm kind of taking the tech side of things as opposed to the people side of things because as people, we're kind of flawed. Yeah. Um, we're not going to be able to overcome our biases 100%. Well, the first one now, knowing where you're going, and David's point as well, is where a lot of people want to go. But how do you ensure that the AI, can you get a pristine AI that is unbiased, is, is the ultimate question. It's like, you know, um, to the point that it's doing the checking, and, and who wrote the algorithms for the checking that weren't biased? So that, that's going to take a while to, to really understand, um, you know, how do you create an AI that really is unbiased? Uh, that said, even in that example, you're absolutely right. Number one, we need to work on making sure there's greater representation of underrepresented groups in our companies so that clearly when you're in a situation, you, you can look to the person to the left or the right and see someone much different than you. Oh, by the way, even if they look the same in male, I can tell you the greatest um, DNI difference is not in race or ethnicity or even gender, it's socioeconomic difference. Right, quite honestly, even somebody you know in a room of people who look exactly the same, you think they have similar back, you know backgrounds. If you really explore socioeconomic difference, I mean, there's a different point of view that comes. Worst case, what programmers should do, you can do something like Mechanical Turk. Even if it's not somebody on your team, as I said earlier, you need to go outside your traditional team, find someone in your company, unless your company is so over-indexed towards a certain uh, you know sort of gender or, or nationality find other people who will just bring different perspectives to it. So what happens is program, we optimize. I used to do it all the time. I mean, we have a deadline, I'm writing code, we gotta drop the code, we gotta, you know, compile the code, it's got to ship product, and we're not taking that extra time to really question whether the thing we've developed truly is gonna serve all of the people that we hoped it to serve. So, yes. That's yeah, so an echo, you know, so echo some of Brian's thoughts on that too. You know, when we look at some of the historical, um, 
benchmark biases, right? So the AMD versus Intel, or you know, Babco, Sysmark versus some of these other ones. I mean, the rudimentary, right? And you know, the reason why EMC didn't participate in Sys, you know, and SPAC, um, right, for for quite some time, right? Because there was some inherent fallacies in those systems, or there's some inherent faults with that. How do you measure something that's completely there? Well, you know, part of those things was you had to disclose everything that you did, right? Everything that was in part of those systems, and, and there was an inventory, right? We wanted to. We wanted to be honest to the extent that we possibly could. However, once you run the workload, who cares, right? We just submit scores and all of a sudden, you know, Hitachi's at the top or NetApp or whatever, right? Or the AMD versus Intel thing. Well, this was compiled this way and this had this flag and, you know, everybody would disclaim it. Um, <clears throat> so a lot, of, a lot of these things, especially when you start to turn over to AI, especially with ML, uh, the ML mark and, you know, some of these new benchmarks that are coming out there. They're trying to level set, they're trying to come up with a, a, a platform or an ide ideology at least that says we can all compete on equal ground and like and so there's checks and balances within that space. Um, I don't think you'll ever get away from having a human in that pipeline. Though. Exactly. I don't think you can. The reason being is you have logic continuums, right? We do things logically that compare processes and things that computers can't do today. Doesn't mean they won't be able to do it in 2050, but today, right? We won't even talk about quantum. <laughs> My mind can't get to that point. But you can't, you can't really erase the human element from any of this stuff either from genesis or, or to execution, right, on the other side. There always has to be that. So even going back to the question about criminal justice system, even if you're going to implement these types of AI systems in place, you always have to. Who's watching the watchers? Right? You have to have that kind of understanding. So a judge should have the authority to go back around and say, I don't believe so. I don't think that's correct and right, right? And there's, there needs to be this correction process in place. So I think it's a both and. We talked a lot about in the yeah. Realize 2030 stuff about augmentation of AI and workforce, right? So it's a, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship, not a parasitic one, or not one super, superimposing itself on the other. I think that comes into play in how you do things here as well. Everything that you develop should have checks and balances in place for human auditors. Even machine can audit, I mean, machines audit code all the time, right? We check things in, make sure yep. that the syntax is correct, right? Um, but there always needs to be a wraparound on the other side that says, whether it be a diversity panel or it be the, somebody else that's in that pipeline that says, Something's not right. I was going to use another word there, but I can't do that from the stage. <laughs> so you have to have these. You have to have these things in place. So I. So I don't. I. I can't imagine a world right now where that you know the human element is removed from that pipeline. So I would say it could be ninety percent automated, ninety-five percent automated, but there has to be something at the end. Agree. Um, just even another social side of that. I mean, um, hit the news the other day that Amazon has a bot that fires people out of the warehouse based on performance. That is an example of a really, really, really terrible implementation of AI. Why would you have an AI that sits over and judges performance of a human and uses it as, a, as an indicator whether or not the person should be retained in business? And Amazon's not the most open in terms of what they talk about either, right? So when it comes to these warehouse systems, like, well, what's, what's the criteria? What's the yeah. rubric that you're applying to me? There always should be somebody watching those things to make sure the machine, because I'm passionate, you know, as a machine, I'm passionate less. I'm emotionless. Mm -hmm. As much as we want to build emotion into AI, I'm going to make very, very rigid decisions on things that maybe there is a reason why person X is not functioning in their job and he determines function, right? So on and on the story goes, but hopefully that gets at least halfway to what you wanted. <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. Body or standard body, 
I personally think we're heading to an era of more transparency, and again, Joy will talk about that. I don't know, the governing body scares me a little bit, because who gets to, uh, to, to you know, I'm with you where you are. But I think we, we are in an, era, in an era of transparency, where you should be willing to disclose what your algorithm, you know, what they look like, unless there's some proprietary, you know, sort of something IP to, to, to your company, and I put that out there. But how do you come to the, um, the results that you come to, or something that I think very you know, socially you know, sort of aware companies should do. Because yeah, understanding the impact, especially if you have systems that do impact masses of people. So I think we are moving more towards an area of, an era of transparency, whether companies want to or not. The people are becoming more aware, the more they get educated on the impact to what's happening. I don't know how you feel about it, but the body is, yeah, I like this. I think uh, I don't trust anybody. Uh, So, social credit system in China. Yeah. If you apply the same kind of system here, you apply the cryptography or you apply it to security, what, what's going to happen? You're going to... Exactly. Yeah. Nation, state, surveillance, and or whatever. We already have the NSA kind of pontificating about how we should all have an open framework somewhere in the Interdiction, Mr. NSA, interdiction. Like, that's all the, you know, as much as you want to complain about Huawei, you did the exact same thing. Right, Bill? <laughs> So you have that kind of process in place, right? And again, who's watching the watchers, right? We, we enjoy, as much as we like to disclaim it, sometimes we enjoy our personal liberties way too much to allow, I think at this point, um, <clears throat> to allow that type of oversight and supervision. IP law is a sticky one, right? Um, at what point does my ability to maintain my IP yeah. intersect with the common good? This becomes a question. This is why patents are, you know, patent review processes are, are changing. This is why actually the Google versus Oracle lawsuit was so fundamentally altering in the end because it says, well, maybe that software that you developed isn't sacrosanct anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe these things aren't what you thought they could be. Um, what's the stealthiest startup, or not startup anymore, but you know, company in Silicon Valley, Palantir, right? What does Palantir do? Lots of data sorting, sifting, and providing those type of things in the background. It makes you wonder, especially in the contracts that they sign, right? You know, there's no do no harm type process in that, right? So all these things have to be reasoned through. I think it, it's you can you can look at a very dystopian future if you if you go down a certain path like that. And you know, we want to we want to stay positive as yeah. much as possible. Responsible. However, we have to look at the we always have to look at the social good versus you know the, the that intersect you know that intersection of social good and what these companies do. And that's one of the big reasons why Brian and I talk a lot about this stuff is because we look at the tendencies or capabilities of our product and our technologies to be used in a way that yeah. bad acting, right? It, it just comes down to it. So, right. two, two more questions or two minutes? Okay. <laughs> Anything over here? Okay. Does this make sense to all you guys? Was it helpful? Hey, Brian, quickly. Sure. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I know they're looking at a number of different data sets, but to your, you know, the earlier questions, it was yeah. to get I applaud their efforts, and again, going back, I hate to, you know, I'm pitching the guru session a big time here. 
it was because her calling them out and they weren't doing those things. So when we talked about we're in this area of transparency, so I applaud their efforts. Now, how are they going to write those algorithms to predict uh, success? Again, I mean, no, because they are, they've been in the news, I think they're going to go about it the right way, and I hope they share their experiences with the rest of us. Uh, but yeah, I actually applaud. Now, IBM, I think it was policy letter number three, uh, they were early on in the diversity and inclusion space way back into the, into the 1960s. Their original chairman uh, really believed in this topic. It was you know, just of, of equality back then. And you know, it's good to see them finally come back uh, to that, because you know, I, I grew up in the mainframe era, and uh, you know, I hold them in very high esteem. And I, it's, so, so I think they will do the right thing. I just hope they share, and we, we all need to collaborate. I mean, that's what we were doing with this product that I spoke about with BiasCheck. It's not about Dell. It's not about uh, what we want or what Mercer wants. It's like, how can we collaboratively come together to inform better decisions in this area? Because it's new, I call it mutually you know, exclusive, I mean, mutually ensured destruction. If I'm stealing, if I steal from my competitor and they steal from me, and that keeps going and we don't grow the, the pool, then none of us are going to win. It's all about us all coming together. Let's build a pipeline of talent so huge that it comes down to really, yeah, let's compete for that talent based on are we the employer of choice for that particular person. But let's not just look at, you know, this is important and I'm going to do this for me. So that's what we're here and we're looking for partnership customers uh, as well as partners as well as in some cases folks who we would traditionally compete with because they won't be successful, we won't be successful if we don't grow the pipeline, we won't be able to innovate and move forward. Yeah, God forbid we inherit the same toxicity that you know, another company had as part of that process without the appropriate yeah. vetting process. Exactly. That. So there's a gentleman in the back that raised your hand. Last question. Um, from a technology standpoint, what has Dell been doing or has done that helps combat that AI bias? That's what we're starting right now. So um, and the, we've always measured, I mean, so we've, it, Dell measures everything. Yeah, it's in Michael's DNA from the beginning. But it's been more around, you know, so the analytics of what has happened. And a little bit of predictive modeling. When I joined the job, we wanted to start getting out of just reporting and start to look at, you know, where we want to go. But with this project that we're starting now, this will be the first time, at least in Dell, that we've actively thought about how to use AI, machine learning, and other technologies and, and integration technologies from the portfolio to really have this holistic view of, at least, bias in this talent continuum. So, and again, we're not going to do it for just ourselves. We're going to do it with customers and partners. And we hope to just sort of cause this, you know, I, I think it's highly disruptive. There's lots of point solutions and no one's kind of like my last company, why SAP did so well in ERP. It wasn't, you know, they weren't looking at each business process in a silo. They looked at the entire end-to-end -end business process. And that's what I think technology can help us do so we don't have that leakage. So, yeah. so further also, a lot of the things, so as a side process or parallel process, what Brian's doing. Um, so my colleague over there, Ed Henry, um, who's been involved in some of these things, we're actually going through an evaluative process internally as well. So we're looking at the concepts of what we do with AI. So we have AI and AI on, right? Whether it be a product-based or not, it's a little bit aside, but we're also setting up these specific work groups to look at things like you know, bias, looking at the ethical components of what AI does. And ethics is a boil the ocean type problem right now, so we won't, won't really jump into that right now. But a lot of these are trying, we're, we're recognizing the difficulties here. You know, part of this is we need to enable our own workforce to say, I got a problem with this particular, you're working with this product. I have an ethical basis that says I should not be working on this, right? It shows up in the news, so you know, stuff uh, we had, 
uh, Satya up on stage yesterday, and you know, we, we all know about the Microsoft news around HoloLens being provided to the army, right? We want to, you know, we understand that people come from all different races, religions, creeds, orientation, whatever it ends up being. And so when we start to evaluate these processes, even some of the questions that we're asking up here, we have to understand what's kind of underpinning all that stuff. And so we need the freedom and flexibility to say to our workforce there, data sciences, uh, scientists, our algorithm developers, or whoever they are, what's your personal ethic? Does this make sense for us to you to be a part of? And if they're not, you know, if it's something that conflicts there, you know, um, World War II, we had conscientious objectors. My grandfather was one of them. He was a Mennonite, right? He chose to be a medic, not a soldier. Well, he was a soldier anyway, but you know, he chose to be a medic over that. So the same type of process needs to apply here. We still retain the talent. We still embrace everything that they can offer and the color that they can bring to the process because in their insight into what we're doing, maybe we'll find something that we didn't, weren't aware of. So these type of processes, whether it be through bias check, you know, again, parallel but intersectional at some point, we're gonna run into these things where we're actually, we're trying to watch ourselves a lot more. So that's some of the stuff I'm doing on my side and some of the stuff that we're doing inside of Dell EMC. It's, it's, I mean, it's across all the strategically aligned business. We're exactly. trying to have that conversation more and more. So very much tip of the spear now, but this is something you will see us push over and over and over and over again as we move forward. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you guys. Right.